Guys, what's going on? We are back with some very special guests. We have Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein. They are both evolutionary biologists who have been invited to address the U.S. Congress, Department of Justice, Department of Education. They've spoken to people all over the world. They both have PhDs in biology from the University of Michigan. And as both of you do not know, but are happy to hear, my major in college was biology. So we are technically colleagues, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> Kidding. But of course, uh, so listen, you guys, they have written a book on a number of things, but it's as always, we're going to try and relate this to not just the football world, as most of the audience here is coming from an athletic background, but uh, we stress all the time the need to understand yourself, understand the world you live in. And I think that uh, both of them have done a great job in creating uh, an environment where people can really understand and learn from the past and history and stuff like that. So both of you guys, how are you doing? And thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. We are we're, thrilled to be here. We're doing really excited well. excited to talk about, uh, yeah, about our physical selves and uh, our place in the universe, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's so much, obviously. There's, there's plenty. But, um, and obviously, I've only flipped through, flipped through the book, and I've seen plenty of talks and, and things like that. But can we, can we start with just your guys' motivation for wanting to write this book specifically and why... Um, it's named how it is and what you hoped straight up to get and to convey, you know, from the book in general. Sure. Uh, we taught for 15 years at the Evergreen State College, and we had a marvelous community of students who learned evolutionary thinking from us. And it was rather common for them to, uh, I guess, beg would be the right word, beg us to deliver a version of the toolkit that we were teaching them to think about what they were and why they had the experience in the universe that they did. They wanted a version of that that they could pass along to their friends. And uh, the events that brought us to the public eye gave us the opportunity to write that book. And it seemed like uh, something we had to do. We, we had this title in mind for more than a decade. And uh, finally, it was possible for us to write it. Yeah, so as as for the title, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, the hunter-gatherer is, of course, a sort of a common trope among people who think about what humans used to be. You know, on the African savanna or on the coasts, we all understand that in the Paleolithic, there was some moment when all of our ancestors were, were there doing that, whatever exactly that is. And the point of the title is in part, actually, there are a lot of different ways, and there always have been, to be hunter-gatherers, but also that's just one moment in our shared history. So we could have, and we make this point in the book, we could have equally well named the book A Fish's Guide to the 21st Century because we were fish and so we remain so. You know, that part of our history doesn't change even though we have. Or a mammal's guide or an agriculturalist's guide or a post-industrialist's guide because all of those represent moments in our evolutionary history to which we are um, more or less adapted at this point. And so, you know, for instance, the you know some of the uh, ad adaptive legacy that we retain from being mammals, the obvious stuff that people think of are things like ma mammary glands and hair, but we have a four-chambered heart. 
Uh, and we are obviously much more able to do things like have high burst speed and and you know breathe and run at the same time as a result of that. And not too much about that has changed since we became mammals. So uh, mostly we speak to the more recent changes in humans, you know, the software-based changes, the behavioral changes. But uh, we're we're trying to understand humans from all of these different evolutionary. Uh, moments in the past. And I, I find that incredibly interesting. I mean, as one of the things that was touched on, there's a, a point of, of trying to understand that it took hundreds of millions of years, obviously, for humans to get to how we are today. And you guys make the point that essentially our ancient bodies are out of sync with the modern world. And that change is what's making us sick. I had the thought, though, of, well, when were we ever in sync when was the time that humans were in sync? Because it seems like, I mean, I obviously don't understand quite enough about evolutionary biology, uh, but it seems like ages that humans have been doing this, more or less, this new kind of thing. And, and obviously with the post-industrial, this whole tech boom and everything that's going on now, I can clearly see that we're off, we're getting ready to take off in a, in a direction that is just, this has not been done before but it seemed like i don't know before what before facebook let's just pretend or before these 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 types of you know social media and stuff like this and the whole tech uh you know move movement if you want to call it that we were similar when were we in sync is my question we have very frequently been in sync but the point we we make in the book the model that we deploy is that human beings are built for novelty. And in fact, we argue that the human niche is niche switching. So we are very good at confronting circumstances to which we are not adapted and adapting to them, largely at the software level. The problem is there is a rate of change that is so high that the built-in program we have for bootstrapping new software to return ourselves to that in-sync state is not capable of keeping up. And that's where we now permanently live. One can see this relatively clearly in the fact that we do not become adults in the same world we were born into. Literally nobody upon your birth can tell you what sort of world you're going to live in. And there is no way for the processes that we have for adapting to adjust to that rate of change. We call it hyper novelty. And part of Part of what is unique about the current moment is that while humans, as, as Brett just said, as we argue, uh, are the most plastic, the most able to modify our environments and to find new environments into which we can become adapted, we have been in the past making those choices actively. So, you know, imagine the peopling of the Americas, people coming down probably along the coast and then following a river upstream and then into, into the inner lands of North America. All three of those, coasts versus rivers versus inlands, require very different ways of sourcing your food, for instance, right? But in each of those cases, the changes were relatively gradual and they were encountered as a result of the choices of at least some of the members in a relatively small band. Whereas right now we are receiving change at such a rapid rate that for the most part, we have very little ability to actually opt in or out of. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And speaking of food and diet, uh, and let me just touch on first, uh, I find it interesting, obviously, the ability for humans to adapt, and I'm just trying to make a connection within my, my, my own life, and we do live in this hyper-novel world, and it's crazy just to connect it as so many people here are from coming from the sports world and how quickly things change. 
um, and how important it is to adapt as a footballer, as a soccer player. Um, you could learn one thing and it, it just goes out the window. It goes out the window so quick. And that, that, rap, that rapid rate of change has something to do with globalization, the fact that more players are playing in different places now. I mean, obviously, 40, 40 years ago, players didn't travel. We didn't have this. And now you've got guys from the Caribbean playing in England and over here and, and over there. And the world that we live in is one of such rapid, rapid change that the game is developing and changing in ways, whereas in the past it would have taken... 30 years for the new new tactics and new things to develop it takes two years ago it's gone it's out <laughs> it's just done you know and we've we've figured out some sort of way with all the tech that's now being pushed onto the the game and, and things like that it's just rapidly changed but you mentioned food and there's just a quote here that that there's no universal best diet for humans and this is something that I think people are going to be fascinated by that's something that I without having any true uh, understanding education and true knowledge and have always felt was the way, but I mean, as you guys know, you live in the modern world and, and one day it's vegan, then it's, then it's all meat and then it's, uh, whatever, then it's eat, eat carbs. No carbs are bad and then you shouldn't. And then fat is good and cholesterol. And I mean, you guys know how it is. So what, what have you found or what have you begun to understand with, with what it is that diet should be, how we should look at it? Let's say. That's a, that's a great question. And obviously some of the diets that are passed down to us are just, just, weird diets that don't, will not withstand the test of time, right? You know, the grapefruit diet, for instance. And some of the, uh, some of the recommendations that we get turn out to be, although it may not be obvious at the time, driven by, by markets, right? Driven by, say, the sugar lobby to inform us in the 80s and go. 90s, <laughs> right? That fat is bad and, and carbs are good. Uh, so, you know, put those aside for the moment. What actually might be the best diet for all humans? Well, there can't be, as you know, as you alluded to, precisely because we are so many different. We are we have much more in common than we have that divides us as humans. But imagine telling an Inuit and a Maasai that there is one diet that is maximally effective and nutritious for all humans, and the two of them have to have to figure out what it is. Well, the Inuit have a long history of an extraordinarily high fat and protein diet with basically no carbs at all. And they managed to they managed to eat without getting, you know, their RDA or yeah, their, you know, US RDA of of fruits and vegetables, right? Because there just aren't any available for the most part. And the Maasai are going to have a very, very different experience indeed. So, you know, part of the point is we are, in fact, as much as you know, the, the modern moment is one in which we have changed our environment such that it is very hard to know what is best for us, and we need to get more in tune with what our bodies are telling us. You know, what are what the real cravings mean, as opposed to, you know, I want more of that hyper-processed packaged thing because it it appeals to ancient um, ancient scarcities. But oh, you know, today I feel like a salad. Okay, you know, pursue that because probably your body is telling you that you need something, uh, something like that. And also, there won't be not only won't there be a universal best across populations, but across uh, demographics and across lifespans. You know, a an eight year old boy and a pregnant woman and an eighty year old man are going to have very different nutritional needs. And so, the idea of a universal diet is patently false when you when you, when you put it that way. You can also um, just. The most obvious example at the population level has to do with what we have done to our niche with respect to milk and what impacts it has had on us, even down to the level of our genomes. 
So some populations have had access to animals that effectively become food dispensers, right? We induce them to produce milk for a longer period than they would, milk designed for their offspring, of course. And we upregulate the enzymes that allow us to take apart the sugars in that milk, which are unique enzymes that we produce as children, because of course we're mammals and we naturally have milk as children, but we do not, or our ancestors prior to animal husbandry would not have produced that enzyme in adulthood because it would have had no value. So by realizing or by um, figuring out how to utilize mammals as uh, living food sources, we have had to alter our physiology and our behavior. But if you then take this and you say, well, uh, dairy products are healthy foods and you deliver them to people whose ancestors did not have a dairy tradition, then they are confronted with sugars for which they in adulthood do not have the ability to easily upregulate the enzymes that would allow them uh, to utilize those sugars. And so they have lactose intolerance, right? Is the, is the optimal human diet one that includes dairy or not? And the answer is it has a lot to do with what population you came from. And in fact, it is the majority of people who uh, do not persist in having lactase, the sugar that breaks down lactose as adults. So, you know, we argue in the book, we're not the first to do it, that this idea of, oh, are you lactose intolerant? Actually, that, that question should be flipped on the head. The expectation is that as a human, you're lactose intolerant. And it's only a few of us, um, you know, who happen to come from dairying cultures from our ancestors, you know, sort of Western European dairying cultures, uh, the Saharan Bedouin, a few others that are likely to be able to continue to really easily digest milk and other dairy as adults. But it becomes even more interesting because at the population level, you have those with a dairy tradition and those without and those with a dairy tradition have the ability to upregulate uh, lactase, the enzyme. But it is also sensitive to individual consuming of dairy products. So if you don't eat dairy as an adult, those enzymes get downregulated. And so there's population level variation, individual level variation, and all of it is uh, subject to history, both uh, lineage level and personal level. So this is got to be one of the most fascinating things, I think, uh, within this field. Uh, I have a friend who mentioned that he was going to take a test, I believe, that was going to tell him what foods were best. Uh, what, do you, what do you guys feel about that? Is that, some, is that something that people should pursue? Should that be something that everyone should? Should people be going to school and taking a quick test? And this is, here's your lunch. <laughs> this is the lunch for these kids and this, that. And should it be done regularly? And what do you feel about those things that are popping up? One, one of the drumbeats in our, in our lives and in our book is that the ability to measure things often betrays what actually is true. And so, you know, once we have metrics, once we have, and once we have metrics that we have used and then thereafter have numbers that we can apply to our own bodies, say, ah, I'm a, you know, I'm a four, whatever it is, right? It's easier to say, to remember that thing as opposed to recognize the complexity of the human body and the human experience. So uh, it is possible that at some point, Science will understand enough about the interplay of genetics and epigenetics and developmental experience and exogenous experience to actually begin to make such prescriptions from a simple, presumably like blood test. But um, frankly, I think it doubtful and we're certainly not there yet. 
not to say that there isn't some, you know, some few little things that you could learn. You know, there are broad truths about ancestry that might, for instance, be able to predict whether or not you are likely to have, you know, lactase as an adult at all, the sugar that breaks down, uh, breaks down milk, uh, or rather the enzyme that breaks down milk sugar, but it's not going to be nearly as useful as actually coming into tune with your own body and recognizing when I, you know, when I eat that thing, um, do I, do I feel like crap afterwards? Crap, exactly. There you <laughs> <Right>? go. <laughs> <That's> yeah. <it. laughs> I would say I, I maybe differ slightly with Heather here. I do think ultimately, uh, if science returns to its senses, we will know enough to look into your genome and, and say something useful about what foods are likely to be well-processed and useful for each individual. The problem is the market is almost certain to want to sell us the idea that it knows enough to do that right now and to give us a much broader pronouncement than is actually justified by what we understand. And so... I'll give you one uh, little anecdote from my own life. I did not know that I had a ferocious wheat allergy. I had all kinds of phenomena that I didn't even realize were symptoms of ill health. I now understand them to be symptoms of inflammation. But what it took to find out was the total elimination of wheat from my diet, and not it was not an immediate effect. It took weeks for the inflammation to clear. And then upon re restoring wheat to my diet or sometimes getting it accidentally, seeing the symptoms return made the pattern very clear. But here's the interesting thing. I test negative on a test for gluten allergy. I also appear not to be reacting to gluten because uh, I discovered that gin and tonics triggered me. I didn't know there was any wheat in a gin and tonic until I dug really deeply, right? Bombay Sapphire Gin is certified gluten-free, and maybe it is gluten-free, but it isn't wheat-free. It's made with wheat, and it triggers me. So I guess the point is, if, if you were to look at a metric here, you would say, well, Brett yeah. Tess is fine for gluten, no yeah. problem. It's all in your head. Right. right. <laughs> but the experience is so unambiguous. When I keep wheat out of my diet, I am very much healthier. And when I end up accidentally encountering it, the symptoms come rushing back. And this is, this is a pattern that I've seen many, many times. So I guess the point is, as Heather said, being, um, paying attention to the patterns that follow from what you consume and how you feel is the way to do this well at this moment. But again, take the caution. It may not be that you take X out of your diet and you feel better tomorrow. It may be that you have follow-on symptoms for some time and you really probably the best approach is an elimination diet where you eliminate virtually everything and then reintroduce them and see what causes an effect that, that matters. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, as an athlete, getting in touch and in tune with your body is probably the greatest thing that I've ever done for my game because you know that the drive is within professional sports to find an edge. And uh, in, in doing so, you end up trying a million different things. And, um, and if you're smart about it, at least in my view, you can become quite hyper aware and very in tune with your body, uh, especially when you're pushing it. It's one thing if you sit down all day and eat some food and you're kind of like, ah, I feel a little tired and you can't really make the, you know, the, the connection. But I found that it's, it's very easy. And so, you know, I, I, I'm a person who doesn't, I don't, I used to love and I still do, I guess I should say, I, I, I don't, I, I love dairy and cheese and stuff like that. I don't, I don't eat it virtually ever. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be what my body wants and needs. And I found <laughs> that more or less rice before games, uh, steak, uh, you know, and tons of vegetables 
I don't eat a whole lot of fruit at all. Uh, and you know, I don't know. I mean, I would love to eventually get tested for, they don't test, they don't tell us these type of things right? when they do tests. I would love to know what, what it says, you know? Uh, but, um, I want to kind of, kind of switch to another, another, another topic that is of a whole lot of interest of, of mine. We had some interesting people on, uh, the podcast, um, in the past, like Dean Radin, um, and Tom Campbell. These are guys that actually more or less study, uh, consciousness and all sorts of, of things. But there's a mention here about the relationship between sleep, dreams, hallucinogens, um, and how we relate to those. And just as a side note, I, um, my mother was a heavy meditator and I always, she would always tell me at 14 and stuff like this. I've told, I've said this before on the podcast, she would say, why don't you meditate? And you know, 14, 15 year old kid, I'm like, what is this nonsense? You sit there on the floor is the dumbest thing ever seen, you know? And that was my attitude. Right. And then get to be 20 and you start traveling, you try it a little bit and, oh, wow, you know, these benefits are unbelievable. Um, and that led to lucid dreaming and some, some really other fascinating things. So I'm curious, uh, where you guys stand with, because number one, I know guys on my team don't sleep enough. Uh, there's actually, we interviewed Manchester United. They have a, a club that has their own sleep specialist, uh, who literally, when they travel, the temperature of the room, the pillows that they have to have, it's, you know, it's very, very in-depth, the oxygen levels within the room. So anyway, um, what have you guys found? What's this? And, and just as a random question, have you guys ever had any lucid dreams? Yeah, uh, we can start there. I used to experiment with lucid dreams. I loved it. Um, yeah, I found it exhausting, though. And so I... <laughs> as much as I got a tremendous amount out of it, I stopped doing it intentionally and now I just have them rarely. Um, but yeah, for a while I was experimenting with it and it was absolutely fascinating. I also, when teaching used to ask my classes to talk about what their dreams looked like or felt like. And I was always shocked at the range of dreams. People have dreams that don't look anything like any dream I've ever had, dreams where they're not looking out their own eyes, right? It's amazing how what a wide range there is. And you don't know this if we just sort of talk vaguely about, about dreams. The, so it's just, I mean, this, this could go on forever, but you know, the idea of first person versus third person narrator in your own dreams, um, you know, I've, I've wondered if this might not just be a result of, you know, being, being someone who reads a lot of different person novels, for instance. Uh, but you know, there, there is incredible variation. And exactly as you say, for the most part, we don't drill down on that level of, of perspective in other people's dreams. You know, someone will say, oh my God, I'm still thinking about this dream from today. And you're like, okay, tell me if you must. But we all know that that's not the most interesting part of the day, right? Well, I, I've always wanted, and I, I'm sure it will not happen. I've, I've always wanted us to do some kind of a systematic survey of what pre-agricultural people exist on the earth and find out what it is that they dream about, mm. right? Find out to what extent our dreams have been modified by, as you say, you know, compelling maybe movies. These things may alter the way our dreams work and it would be great to know what the ancestral state was to the extent that's even still possible. Um, the, the basic model that we deploy in the book is that there is a suspicious resemblance between the list of symptoms of a person who is experiencing schizophrenia would be the most obvious example, 
a person who is hallucinating because they've ingested uh, psychedelic mushrooms, for example, and a person who is dreaming. And we don't notice that the list of symptoms is the same because we describe these things. We don't even think about them in the same uh, mindset. And the point really is we know and we have in the book uh, a test to detect whether some feature of an organism is the product of adaptive evolution, or at least should be presumed to be. And dreams clearly pass that test. They serve a value for us. What psychologists have landed on that this might be random firings, it's all nonsense. These are clearly serving a function. But what the function is, is not so, so obvious. In any case, though, it involves narrative. It involves uh, what we would call scenario building, right? That is to say, running oneself through uh, narratives in which usually there's some sort of tension, something that needs to be resolved, something that could go come out worse or better. And that machinery, in order to have a value, has to be hidden. The, the dream, the movie-making machinery has to be hidden from the part of the mind that actually consciously engages life right? It's not good practice if you know what's on the next page of the book. It has to be a surprise to you. So there's some sort of movie-making apparatus. And the question is, well, what happens if it comes on inappropriately during the day, for example, as you're walking around and doing your business? Well, that would look a lot like schizophrenia, wouldn't it? And is there any way to trigger it, right? To turn it on when it shouldn't be on, even if you don't have schizophrenia? Well, that's kind of like what happens if you take mushrooms. And so the question is, are these things really three different manifestations of the same phenomenon? And what are the implications then? And what we say in the book is that virtually every human culture has some mechanism for accessing this state. It's not that every person in the society does so, although there are societies in which that's the case, like the Huichol of Mexico. Um, well, I'm sorry, could you tell me tell me about this? That's actually a discussion that I'd had with someone, is that the, the idea that these states, while possibly prevalent in certain cultures, there definitely was always like a shaman, uh, a priest, uh, a little small group. So are you saying that there's a group of people where it's kind of standard that this is, what was the name of there? The Huichol. Uh, the Huichol. The Huichol have a culture based, uh, based around oh. peyote. And in fact, they have a peyote pilgrimage um, that everyone does multiple times in a lifetime if they are capable of it. Um, they do have shamans, but the, um, the uh, pursuit of peyote and the use of it is a culture-wide phenomenon. And really, our, our point is that dreams have a value humans are hackers by nature. And what we have the ability to do is actually utilize, basically we borrow an analog of a neurotransmitter or a set of neurotransmitters produced by uh, a fungus, by an amphibian, uh, by plants. These things are in those creatures to dissuade other creatures from eating them, right? You can imagine if you were uh, a deer and you ingested some mushrooms and then had the equivalent of a psychotic break, it might cause you to avoid those mushrooms. So, but we can borrow these chemicals and we can titrate them and use them to trigger these states. And these states basically allow us to have a very high creativity, possibly low veracity experience, but one that might hint at truths that our conscious mind is ignoring most of the time. 
So let me just say a few things about sleep that isn't explicitly about dreams. Uh, since you know, we argue in the book that we're aliens to land on the planet, were they to have had the technology and the consciousness to get here, they would not be surprised that we spend a third of our lives in, uh, in a sleep state because they would surely sleep as well. So we argue that not just, as Beth just said, are dreams adaptive, but sleep itself is, is adaptive. And one of the things that is deranging us humans, modern humans now, and you speak to this with regard to the sleep specialist for Manchester United, is, is that we have sleep disruption. And yes, that disrupts our dreams, but it also disrupts everything about our sleep. So, you know, one of the responses to, for instance, having a baby is to make sure that that baby has absolutely no interruptions when they're finally sleeping because, oh my God, isn't it super exhausting, right? And, and you you are aware of this, um, but if you provide a child with an utterly quiet and an utterly isolated environment, they are a going to end up being um, you know waking up, seeing themselves alone, and be terrorized, and they're going to start screaming. And also, if what you do to a tiny baby is provide an environment in which the only way in which they sleep is when there is no noise, you will probably guarantee that that child will grow up into someone who needs total quiet to sleep. And some of us are lucky enough to have that environment, and most of us aren't. And so having, you know, imagine what again, an agriculturalist or a hunter-gatherer would have had as they were going to sleep. There would probably have been people sitting around a campfire making noise, perhaps making music, perhaps, you know, cleaning up dishes. And that should be something that people can go to sleep to. By comparison, those little blue LEDs that shine out of devices in most people's bedrooms now, nothing to which we should be adapted to utterly deranging of sleep. It's at exactly the wrong spectrum of light uh, that we should be receiving into our eyes at night. That blue spectrum light is daytime light, and it's probably sending the signal, wake up now. So, you know, yes, get rid of the blue lights from your rooms, absolutely, and spend very little time on screens in the hour or so before you go to bed. But, you know, abolish all noise from your child's bedroom and, and home environment, not so much. So you know this, this is the sort of this is the sort of thinking that we are that we are producing in the book in the chapter on sleep. So if I can add add one thing, um, something like blue light sends some kind of a signal about what time it is. For most people, the disruption of the blue light may be that it wakes you up. For some people, it may be that it wakes part of you up. Right. So what we hint at in the book is the possibility that pathological states like schizophrenia may be the result of dysregulation of the normal sleep apparatus. And it is very interesting when you look at, for example, uh, cultures that are minimally technological, schizophrenia does not tend to be a lifelong phenomenon. It's on the one hand rare and on the other hand transient. And so there's a question about what it is that we are doing in our environment that is causing this to be a common feature of many people's lives that they just simply have to endure and things like blue light may be implicated. And that's a, that's a perfect segue into um, <clears throat> the fact that we now experience, number one, this comes up virtually every podcast, regardless of the guest, the discussions on the anxiety that is essentially creeping around everyone's, uh, not just children, it just seems like <laughs> adults also now have this anxious feel that uh, even, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, felt like it just wasn't, I wouldn't say it wasn't there, but that it is 
it has somehow um, increased in number over the last 15 to 20 years. I feel like the 90s, while certainly an interesting time, it seemed like we didn't have the same level or that same anxiety and that pressure and that level wasn't there. But uh, where I'm going with this is that I'm actually rather interested to understand these diseases, these, I guess I shouldn't say diseases, or maybe even auto autoimmune diseases or disorders and things like that, that we are experiencing now. Are Is it really true that the ancients and even, let's say, a few thousand or even a few hundred years ago, that they weren't experiencing those at all or in far less numbers? And has there been just this a massive explosion over, I'm not sure what time, let's just say 50 years or something, something like this. Um, and is that in large part to diet as well as this tech boom and not caring about sleep and, uh, you know, lights, whatever started in 1800s or 1700s, whatever that, that, that was and, and staying up and stuff like that. What triggered that? And is that true? That's, I would love to know, like, did they have, this, yeah, I, I can't think of a good autoimmune disease, but uh, did they have something like that in the, in the past? Uh, or would they just look at us and say, you guys are wild. Like you wouldn't have any of that. Just like if you stop eating wheat, they're like, just stop looking at the phone. And like your the quality of your sleep is what matters, not just that you sleep eight hours. So I'm curious. Yes, is the answer to the question. And it's many of the factors that you identified. You know, it's the screens and it's the pharmaceutical drugs that are used to treat symptoms rather than understanding what it is that's going on. It's the, um, you know, it's the helicopter and snowplow parenting that keeps children from all risk, uh, such that they arrive at 18 uh, with the bodies of adults and the minds of children unable to, to, to make decisions for themselves. Um, and it's and it's diet, but it's also, um, and this is related to each of those things. But it's also spending so much of our time indoors, and spending so much of our time doing abstract virtual things rather than physical things. And you know, you and your audience are you know well familiar with this. But the idea that we can actually act as if we're disembodied, that our cognition can act separately from our physical beings, is an absurdity. And we see the deranging effects of it. And so, you know, we argue that anyone who cannot um, do something in the world that has a physical manifestation where they can actually test their understanding of the universe by, by you know, playing a sport, by gardening, by bicycling, by, um, you know, ev even something like, you know, baking, where there is just a physical manifestation of what you are doing that cannot be negotiated by social means will enable you to have a better understanding of what kind of role you're playing in the universe and, and whether or not you're making any sense. Whereas if everything that you do can, you, you can then convince an audience afterwards that was actually better than it seemed. And there's no check, there's no fact check, there's no physical fact check on your claim. Of course, you're going to end up being anxious and deranged and not quite sure what your place is in the universe because you're not allowing the universe to give you any actual feedback. So you know, in our, our cognition is embodied, our senses are embodied, and we are moving, you know, especially, especially with COVID, but also especially with smartphones and with the internet, we are moving to an ever less embodied existence. And I guess one more point on this, which is, again, related, but not exactly the same point, spending so much time inside, A, tends to correlate with spending less time moving, too, uh, but also it means that we're getting less vitamin D. 
And, you know, vitamin D turns out to be one of these few things, which yes, we can measure. So this, this is running a little bit counter to what I said earlier about, you know, the, the problem with metrics that once you can measure it, you think it's the answer. But the vast majority of modern people turn out to be vitamin D deficient. And the most powerful and most common way that we get vitamin D is from the sun on our skin. And the effects of vitamin D deficiency run from increased risk of cancer and diabetes and multiple sclerosis and you know sleep disorders, um, all the way to yes, autoimmune diseases, uh, and uh, lower resistance to contravene infectious diseases. So you know, spending time outside doing physical things with your body has way more benefits than we even yet know. Yeah, the the question you ask does not have a simple answer. We live longer on average than ever before. We are not healthy, and this is visible in many different systems at once. We also have absolute nonsense explanations for why we are unhealthy, right? So the entire field of orthodontia is founded on the claim that something about our genomes has caused our teeth not to fit properly into our jaws or not to come in in the right direction. This cannot be correct. The change is too fast, and um, it is not our genes. It is development, which interrupts the feedback that would cause the jaw to develop correctly and have enough space for the teeth, and it has many other consequences, uh, sleep apnea. For but in example. that case, it partially is food, right? It's giving babies soft processed food right. uh, rather than giving them hard stuff it's to chew on. It's not the nutritional content of the food. It's, <laughs> it's the jaw building that comes from food that isn't heavily processed. But in any case, what we have is across the board a failure to recognize that we are developmentally causing ill health, right? Because we're very focused on, well, what do you do for the child whose teeth don't come in straight? Well, you straighten them. That's not a very good solution. It may be the right thing to do, right? It may be the right thing to do. But it's not nearly as important as not doing whatever you did to future generations, right? If we completely cure the problem for future generations, then what we do for the generation that we've got with crooked teeth is a much smaller issue. If we're gonna keep generating those people, then of course we're just gonna have to keep straightening their teeth and throwing up our hands. Um, so we live longer, we are unhealthy, the anxiety is partially the result of the fact that we are insulated from uh, the kinds of harms that would cause us to become robust and anti-fragile over time. Uh, it is also true, I would say, though, that a certain amount of that anxiety is an accurate response to the ever-growing pile of evidence that nobody who knows what's going on is in charge, right? The discovery that you're on some ship hurtling through the North Atlantic and there's literally nobody at the helm is a frightening fact. And so, you know, I, I would say we, we shouldn't discount it and tell people just to buck up too easily because the anxiety is at least partially targeted at a real hazard. Your ancestors, all of our ancestors, would have been much more likely to be malnourished by virtue of the fact of not having enough food because boom and bust cycles had this implication. So it's not a simple question. We are in many ways better off, but we are also causing all sorts of unnecessary harm, largely in the form of a mismatch developmentally 
between what we do and what it is that our bodies expect. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, along with the jaw, we just had James Nestor uh, <clears throat> on as well, and he has a book. I'm not sure if you guys are aware of his book, Breathe. Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. And we, it, we did. But... You haven't read it? Okay. Uh, great guy. He's a matter of fact, funny enough, he's actually going to be in Zagreb here giving a, a whole talk on, on breath here this Friday. Um, but uh, I found it fascinating, and, and it's something that I didn't even consciously you know, touch on my teeth were always straight. Uh, I never had any, uh, issues with that. My parents didn't either and, and, and all that stuff. So I didn't have braces or any of that stuff, but it is fascinating to think that, yeah, that the fact that we're eating these soft processed foods that is changing our jaw and <laughs> our, in the structure of our teeth. And then you think about it for a second, you go, well, obviously, well, what's it, what's it for? Like if, if you don't use it, you lose it. That's, that goes for everything. If you don't read, you get, you're, you're worse at reading. If you don't do math, you're worse at math. You don't run, you're worse at running. That's just a fact of this reality for some, for some reason. Somehow it's easier, sorry to interrupt, but somehow it's easier sure. to know that with regard to muscles. Like everyone now knows this is true of muscles. And the idea that it's true of our skeleton as well is for, for the mainstream orthodontia still somehow a bridge too far. Like, you know, no, the bones won't respond to the pressures and to the, you know, to what you're eating and become anti-fragile. Of course they will. Just because you can see the change in sort of almost real time with regard to muscle mass um, doesn't mean that the skeletal change isn't real. Of course it is. Just like you say, of course you use it, you, you know, you use it or lose it. Well, it's, it's that, but it is also the part that surprised me. I knew there was something wrong with the story of orthodontia. Um, from the get-go. It never made any sense that this was some sort of a, you know, rapidly spreading failure of genes. Um, but it's more than just simply strengthening the jaw. It has to do with the information that the jaw has about itself that comes through the challenge of, of chewing on, uh, on tough foods. And so essentially those of us who did not have properly tough foods to chew on young enough in our lives um, or early enough in our lives, have a collapsing of the jaw, which then results in things like there not being enough space for all of the teeth and therefore the teeth trying to make the best of a bad situation and coming in crooked trying to solve an unsolvable problem. So I think the idea that, you know, we, we look at a, scale, a skull, right? And it looks like a very static entity because it is after you're dead. But when you're alive, that thing is actually in motion based on information it has. And in fact, the entire ability to move teeth is us using the internal system that the body has for adjusting the position of teeth, which it does throughout your lifetime, right? We can use that system and we can put information into it that says you're too close over here and there's a space there. So go that way, right? That's, that's part of a system that you're, uh, you're, jaw is using all the time to micro adjust the position of teeth, which you as a, as a footballer will have had an experience that, that, that hints at this, right? Surely you have hit a tooth and had it loosen and then tighten back up, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's crazy. That's the result of the fact that your tooth is not just a rock-like object embedded in a, you know, in a bone. It's actually connected to that bone by ligaments, right? Those ligaments are about motion. And so if one tooth is banging into another, it sends information to move it in the other direction. And that uh, loosening and then tightening back up is that system 
uh, humming along just as it's supposed to. Yeah, well, I can remember at least two or three occasions, and every time it happens, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have to, I'm going to lose this tooth, I'm going to do, and then you're fine, you're fine. Like, it moves, and then you're fine. And so it's always like a miracle to me when it happens. But um, you, you mentioned that we're spending too much time inside, and I'm going to assume that you guys are aware of the lovely new term, the metaverse. Ish. Uh, aware yeah, of this? Like, Ish? Okay. Well, help help me out. What does metaverse <laughs> oh, mean? This is great. This is great. I can... Okay. So, I mean, you're obviously aware of the internet and, and our connection to it, and we're essentially attached to... <laughs> okay. We're using it right now. Um, well, there's this... Uh, there's a... And I know Facebook's going through a little hoopla, and there's supposedly within the next seven to 10 days, there's possible change in their name uh, coming and that will be linked with the metaverse. And the metaverse is an essentially, and I'm not sure if I can give a, a proper definition, but I can get you to understand. It's essentially uh, going to be a linking up of the internet throughout your normal world. If you guys remember a few years ago, Google Glass tried to make a big, and it was a, this is a wretchedly ugly looking thing. And because I don't know, in, in the nineties and early two thousands, we saw videos and we thought that that's what the future was going to look like and no and so anyway they've 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 gone on and the companies like Ray-Ban have have connected and they have nice glasses maybe even like what you're what you're wearing now that will look like this and will allow for augmented reality to become a part of your everyday life and so the idea here is that um there's no need for you to have a separation between a computer a phone anything else that will have augmented reality and that will be place in the metaverse it'll be this place that you can essentially have a second life uh do things that are just overlaid onto your world <laughs> i can see you wincing a little in terror i don't know <laughs> go ahead your well, thoughts would, on that <laughs> i'm a i'm a longtime devotee of the subreddit what could go wrong <laughs> in which there are videos of Every kind of thing that yeah, could yeah. go wrong, and this is sort of the ultimate what could go wrong. You can, you <laughs> but it can would make for very poor videos, frankly. <laughs> no, there'll be lots of videos of people messing up their lives based on things they misunderstood because of the uh, the metaverse. Was it? Yes, um, the metaverse. Yeah, the metaverse. Yeah, this is uh, this is well. Let's put it this way. Let's look at the bright side. I don't like to be so negative. This quite possibly is going to end up being the worst idea anyone ever had. So that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like we're now about now to that hit we've hit bottom. low, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> only, the only way you can go is up. But I fear that you have too often thought, now oh, we've right. done it. Yeah, you know, this is this is the nadir. And then then the world surprises you. The world does yeah, surprise we, we you. Pull out of it somehow. It does seem and I mean I'm on that tip and I'm thirty-six. Uh and I don't we have a plenty of social media. I mean it's it's a business for me, and not that I don't enjoy everything that we're doing, having discussions like this, which I actually love, to be honest, because people wanna of course you play soccer, you play professional sports, they want to talk to you about that and only that. And um, but uh I'm definitely of the the case that i i love to read i have books here i'm i i don't want to spend my time on the internet uh i i i want to have deep thought and i would like to have deep work and and all of these things and the idea that i will need to live in a second world is exhausting um you know it's enough like you said with the lucid dream world even trying to maintain some balance there is already enough so i, I i'm troubled by it i'm also a little I would say troubled and intrigued, at least I guess some by the the Neuralink 
idea. It just, if you guys are familiar with the Neuralink and Elon Musk, the idea and just plugging you on. And, and it seems like for some reason we've decided, although I didn't get a vote and it doesn't appear that most people got a vote, that we're going that direction, that we've just decided that linking up with technology is the best way. And <laughs> if it works, it is, because think of how many genders you can have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. And that's something where I wanted to go. <laughs> Sorry. No, yeah, we no, have we, to go. We have been, go we, have, we, we haven't been given a choice. I think, you know, this is, this is a big part of the problem that we are now just, I don't even know what the word is, but, you know, fast forwarding into a future that none of us have chosen, nor have we been able to vote in any way, because opting out of some of these things doesn't appear to be an option. And that, you know, that is the cautionary, that is the huge cautionary lesson of, of our book and, you know, and, and, and of the modern moment, right? That, you know, how, is it possible to say actually not for me? Not often enough. It's not possible. Yeah, actually, now, now that you mention it, this is this is really the point: is that um, our our book, it, the one of the couple of central themes is hypernovelty. Hypernovelty is inherently a massive danger to creatures like us, even though we are the most capable of adapting of any species that has ever existed. And the point is, you can now see the next train wreck coming, right? This metaverse <laughs> idea it cannot possibly <laughs> cannot possibly go right. It's coming so, though. <laughs> Oh, it's coming. Yeah. And, you know, I, yeah. think, I think the thing is you can position yourself to have the conversations that we will be having in 12 years about all of the terrible things that we couldn't possibly have seen coming about this. And if only we had known. Um, and, you know, I mean, maybe the, if you take one lesson from our book, let's let's have those conversations now. Yes. Right? Preferably around an actual campfire. Right. In fact, this this I don't know what Facebook has planned with respect to a name change, but I have a couple of ideas. Go for it. Well, I think um, for one thing, I think they're trying to be an enlightened company, uh -huh. which means yes. that they presumably have a um, a green view of the future. So yes. I think face yeah. plant would be. <laughs> A good one. That's good. And also because we will be undoubtedly accessing the metaverse through our phones, I think Face Palm also yeah. is potentially Face Palm is good, but yeah. they're they're going to move you off the phone. That's the hope, though. We're going to hope that we can get you some contact lenses eventually, of course, or some glasses that you you won't need to. And and of course, your phone has the technology already, supposedly, to go ahead and display things into your environment. It just hasn't been you know accessed. So. You know, uh, just give them a few, give them a few years, and and you'll be living in a perfectly new new world. The, oh, okay. the question: so How about then a despair book? Uh, Could despair <laughs> book? <laughs> the, the right, there's, there's a lot. Of, there's okay. a lot. Of, I'm I'm slowly You're being persuaded. That there's, there's they're going to. Supposedly, this is what is supposedly, and that that came out. That news just came out last night, and it is going to happen. And I was just mentioning to the guys in our in our in our company that whatever name they do choose, they will get trolled for. A year, a two year, I, I don't know. And then people won't remember anymore. Facebook will be some sort of ancient relic where this thing, I, I, I don't know, we, we'll, we'll forget somehow and they'll try and, and change because things just move. And somehow if the metaverse goes well for them and their little, you know, uh, experiment, they'll be called whatever. In despair book, face palm, face plant. That's what it is. Uh, <laughs> the the question I have because there's there's plenty on here on raising kids and and, and um 
you guys mentioned some stuff that <clears throat> parenting, it says just here, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting, or at least reading from, from this junket, parenting may well be the most compromised by hypernovelty of the 21st century. We're stealing kids' childhoods and dooming our species in the process. So what do you guys have, maybe not necessarily just as parental advice, but as dangers, things to look out for, what is it? And also, if somebody could define the term sharenting for me as well. I can't, re I, I can't remember. This came up, actually, while we were writing the book. Some, oh, our I, editor I, I, mentioned I can it. guess. I can't remember what it is. I'm going to guess that this is a, um, a rationalization where the pseudo-sophisticated idea of polyamory is defended against the obviously right argument that it will destroy two-parent households because males are super aware and programmed to be to avoid raising other people's children. I'm not sure I, that that may be what that word means. It may mean something totally different, and I just don't remember. Well, let's put it this way. There is an argument that says it will be better than two-parent households because nobody will know whose child is whose, and everybody will contribute equally. And um, <laughs> uh, Yes, and you know, my, my point before has been, you know, oh, the idea that if, if a bunch of men don't know who the dad is, they'll all parent equally. I'm like, yeah, they will, which is to say none at all. Exactly. <laughs> like, they're just, they're just going to go off and find yeah. other opportunities elsewhere, won't they? Um, so yeah, chi you know, we are, we are stealing children's childhoods and uh, it misunderstand what the way that so many people are parenting now misunderstands what childhood is. So you know, we're born as, you know, as, as you know, our babies are born so helpless, like literally can't roll over by themselves for weeks. That is a remarkable level of helplessness. And it's in part because we have such giant brains um, that although they really need to cook for longer inside mom, there's no ability to continue to be expanding uh, the birth canal and keep women stable on our feet and, and have the babies um, be born at an age when they could actually do stuff for themselves. So they have a lot of their really early development outside in the world. And then even as they start to be able to roll over and crawl and walk and talk and run and think and abstract and have theory of mind, that takes a long time. And what they're doing during that time is learning how to be human. It's not an accident. It's not an error. The fact that we have the longest childhoods on the planet uh, for our lifespan is actually a feature of what it is that we are as humans because we have so much to learn, not just about how to be a human anywhere, but how to be a human specifically where it is that we're growing up. And so protecting those children from all experiences that the parent didn't imagine in advance or feels are slightly risky will guarantee that what that childhood was, you know, okay, so you had some some periods of time when you could gaze upon your gorgeous child uh, and you knew that they were safe. Uh, but they're not going to be ready for the world. They're not going to be, they're not going to have grown up in any real sense. Their bodies will continue to develop, hopefully, um, and although e we're messing even with that at this point. Uh, and they will, you know, they will get to be 18, as I, as I said before, with no ability to know what risk is, to ask questions, to do pattern recognition, to engage with other people socially or in relationship. Uh, and, you know, that's, tr that's more true the less 
embodied their world was, the less uh, real social interactions they had, the less able they were to experiment with each other and with the world and ask questions that were maybe, you know, not the, you know, not the best questions, right? Like, you know, we need, we need to expose ourselves to things that will be risky and maybe even sound out there physically, intellectually, emotionally. That's how we learn how to be adults. That's how we get wisdom. Actually, it strikes me that in the context of sport, there's the perfect analogy that childhood is scrimmage for life. Mm. And something like school or what you can learn on the internet might be like drills, right? You can learn a certain amount from a drill, but mm -hmm. imagine that you try to field a team of players who had been put through drill after drill after drill, but had never played a game, right? They're going to suck. They're going to be absolutely terrible at it, right? At many different levels, right? So anyway, that is effectively what we are doing to children by not allowing them to experiment in the actual world. Now, one does have to insulate them from some harm, but the idea is they have to be exposed to real risks that are enough to produce costs in their life that matter to them, right? You want to, you know, you obviously don't want your kid to end up getting killed because they've been exposed to too much risk all at once that they didn't have the tools to manage. But over time, they have to face greater and greater risks if they're going to manage risk well as adults. And uh, we, are, we are really blowing it. And we are seeing the catastrophe that arises when people who we have not taught how to build anything or we have not allowed them to learn how to build anything and we haven't given them the tools to navigate risks effectively they end up demanding that the world make them safe which isn't the way the world has ever worked right, right? it's not it's going to be fruitless and they're going to tear apart civilization in uh, the naive belief that the world could be made safe for them I guess, and there's there's one way in which this seems, you know, th what what both of us just said, I totally stand behind. But it this sort of messaging has been misconstrued sometimes um, to imagine that actually what you need to do from day one of your child's life is expose them to risk and you know let them you know, let them cry it out, for instance, which is one of the modern forms of parenting. Just you know, put them down to sleep alone in a room, and if they cry, just let them cry it out because they're going to have to learn how to comfort themselves. Well, no. Right. You know what 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 we need, what we need as children is to know for sure, because we are so helpless, is to know for sure that our parents and perhaps more than that, but at least our parents utterly have our back, that someone will come if we are in danger. And, you know, frankly, the more often your child is in physical contact with you in the very early days and weeks and months, the better, the more certain that child will will be that they have an attachment that is there for them, such that when they do start exploring, they know that if they run into trouble, someone's looking out for them. And if they cry then, they're going to come, right? And then they can go farther and farther and farther, not because at two months old, they were allowed to cry themselves to sleep. That's going to produce the opposite, right? And similarly, as a 12-year-old, if, if the parent is right there hovering all the time and not letting them explore, that's going to produce the opposite. So it's, you know, it, this, is, this is a developmental process, both for child and for parent, and therefore for the relationship between them. Yeah, and, and, and truly fascinating. I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I'm an only child uh, my, myself, and I, both my parents uh, really pushed me on and, and spurred my my interest, I actually ended up leaving school early. So I studied for a year and a half. And as a matter of fact, this is 
cool that I get to, to say this, but we were studying the cross-pollination of plants in my biology class. And that was the moment where I said, that's not what I signed up for because I wanted to study a bit more of the, I actually wanted to, to take physiology, but we didn't have it. And I had actually chosen the school, obviously based on football. And I, I left after a year, year and a half, but, um, and now I've totally lost where I was going with this, but I'll, 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 I'll bring it back here to, to this. I have two, uh, two quick questions. I know we're just about done with time. Do you guys, are you guys okay for those two quick questions? All right. Uh, I, the first one pertains to what we were just, um, going, uh, what we were speaking about. You mentioned that we had the longest childhood, you know, of all the species possibly, you know, uh, I have friends that are 40 who are still children. Uh, so, and I know that that cannot be, sorry. I know that that is a, it feels to me, I can't know this for sure, but it feels to me that that is a recent thing and it is annoying for me even to see, and uh, they're my friends and, and, and this, and I know that it, it, it's fine to go. I, I don't even think that it's a bad idea to go home at whatever age, 30, 25, 26, you know, go home and stay home, maybe save some money, whatever. I think that's a great idea as long as you leave, uh, you know, eventually, as long as you continue to take on responsibility. And it's something that we stress in, in, in what you mentioned about continually, <clears throat> continuing to take a little bit more risk and knowing that you have a base, but taking a little bit more risk. That's how you learn that's uh, what we preach on how to how to get better at soccer. You don't do the new Cristiano Ronaldo trick on your day one. You build a base and you understand I'm here and and then you branch out. And so it, it's it's a great you know metaphor for you know for for life in 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 that sense. But uh, what is causing man children? You guys are evolutionary biologists. Can you just tell me what's causing? And I guess I shouldn't. I don't know. If it just feels like females. I've got it a little bit more under control in that age range. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm wrong uh, because I, I hang out with guys all the time, but why are we man children? What is going on? What happened? Where did we go wrong? Uh, first, I'll say both the sexes are going off the rails. And okay. it, it, it looks different in women. Okay. Um, and, it, you know, you okay. don't tend to have women children in the same way. You know, everyone will recognize what you mean when you say man children. Um, but it, it because men and women are actually, wait for it, different on average, right? You know, we're, we're, when, when we go off the rails, when we become deranged, uh, it's going to look somewhat different. But you want to speak to the, the yeah. man-child um, issue? <laughs> There's a lot to be said, so I'll just hit a few of the, the highlights of the answer. One has to do with the fact that because the world is changing so quickly, we don't have a childhood that prepares us. And so the idea that you're not ready to fledge, like imagine you're a bird standing at the edge of a nest and somehow you really don't have the program on board about how to fly, it sort of keeps you, maybe I'll just stay, right? Um, second thing is we have lost rites of passage, right? If you live with the idea that at some point you're going to take a vision quest, you're going to have to go out and hunt the so-and-so and bring it back, whatever it is, even though that's an arbitrary moment at one level, you know it's coming and you know when it's passed and you know when you take on the rights and responsibilities of an adult. For us, it's very vague, right? Graduation from high school doesn't really mean anything, right? So we, we don't have those. But and, and sorry, but we also have lost at the same time external measures by which, especially for men, I think, um, will find their meaning. So the hero's journey is disappearing. You know, war is terrible. Um, but you know, 
war and and other things like that do provide a sense of meaning and camaraderie and after which you have a more you know a, a more pinpointed sense of okay what is what am i capable of doing and what might i do further in the world now that i have escaped death and you know especially if you've never you know if you've never come close to death it's much harder to get a sense of what it is that you're doing in the yeah, world yeah it does it does create context but i would yeah. say um the awkward uh, elephant in the particular room here is that the old world, and not even so long ago, even a hundred years ago, the old world was organized around a relationship between the sexes that uh, I don't think we could make an argument that it was inherently fair in any regard, right? Burdens were distributed in an arbitrary way. However, well, it, not arbitrary, but also not fair. Well, in, in a somewhat arbitrary way. Uh, it's not arbitrary. Yeah. There is a logic to it. It's not mm -hmm. like somebody rolled the dice on each of these things. But, you know, there's nothing that says that the balance of uh, costs will have fallen equally on the sexes as viewed by the sexes with respect to whatever um, objectives they may have. But the, the point is this. In the past, sex was scarce right? Why is sex scarce? Because the cost of having sex for a female is extremely high. The production of an offspring with somebody who won't contribute to raising the child is very high compared to producing a child with somebody who will raise the child, who will partner. And so what that meant was that women were on their guard and it made sex rare, which made sex an extremely potent motivator for men, right? In order to earn the right to a sexual relationship with a fertile female, men had to achieve, right? Because men were in competition with each other. And so I'm not saying that's a good world, but I am saying that's a world that makes sense. It's a world in which men strive for reasons that are relatively easy to understand. And in the world we have now Sex has been turned into something different. The stakes have been lowered dramatically. The expectation, uh, you know, people who don't have sex quickly in dating are understood to be prudes and they pay a social cost. And so all of that has lowered the bar to sex. And then we have all of this sort of artificial stuff that scratches the same itch, you know, with porn for every conceivable uh, preference and kink. And so, well, just like as we argue in the book, just like junk food actually makes you feel like crap if you're in tune enough with your body to recognize that you're going to be less capable of performing to your to your best abilities after a lifetime of eating it. Junk sex, junk media, we have the junkification of a lot of things that have the capacity to bring us meaning and to give us something to strive for. Um, but because sex feels good, of course it does. It's amazing. Um, that doesn't mean that more right now is inherently better for us. <laughs> right. And I mean, at some level, what we're losing, the, the market has delivered us the inverse lesson that we should be getting. Delayed gratification is often the key to satisfaction in life across every domain, right? The I want to scratch that itch right now thing it results in a very thin kind of satisfaction. And so, I, you know, among the many answers to your question, one is that the 
system of incentives that used to cause people to strive and therefore to mature because it was the key to something has been upended and nothing coherent has been put in its place. That makes perfect sense. And I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I'm sure there's even, even more. I, I've, I've so many friends in my, in my head that I'm just thinking of and they check all of those, those boxes along with the junk food, you know, and the junk relationships and, and stuff like that. But uh, last question, hopefully you guys have time because we didn't touch on it a whole bunch. And, and considering the world that we live in, you guys are the people that uh, one would want to, to speak about. There's one little blurb here on this page. Now it says, some traditional gender norms are evolutionary. And it is a catastrophic mistake to believe they are all regressive. Um, with all of the talk going on, I can't even all the talk. I can't keep up at all. You know, I'm just going to be perfectly honest. It's it's. We have another podcast with we have two two other guys, and we just we tried we tried our best, and we just essentially gave up. Ninety minutes of of adults trying to figure out where do we stand, how do we the pronoun, and 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 we got down to to the end of it by saying. We obviously, A, don't care what you want to be called. Um, we respect, it's clear, we obviously respect you, your consciousness, your ideas, your everything. It's, it's, there's, some, there's something weird going on that I, I truly would love to understand where th this whole, it's being used as, it's weaponized now too. It's, I'm not on your team somehow. I don't understand it, but I do. And I'm not sure. And I can't understand the whole thing. And I know I'm not formulating this question in the right way, uh, but I, I should ask, even just point blank, are genders, is this, is, does, what does biology have to say about gender? Could you, could you, <laughs> could you bring that into a, <laughs> in a simple, simple form? And, and then just finally, if you could, just, just the current state and how you guys feel about what is going on and where this could take us, because it seems like if it, that goes off the rails. It could be batshit crazy in the world in like 40, 50 years. I can't even imagine. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it has gone off the rails and it is batshit crazy. Um, this is perhaps the easiest of the modern derangements to point to, to say that is a, it is a blatant rejection of reality to claim uh, that a male can actually turn into a female if you are a mammal. Sex is real. Sex is binary. Sex is at least 500 million years old in our lineage. And it may be as old as 2 billion years old in our lineage. Gender is also real. Gender is also evolutionary. Gender is, um, in animals, by my, by my definition, the behavioral manifestation of sex. Brett has, I think, a, a broader uh, definition, which is that gender is the software of sex. Okay, so um, because of, and you know, we, we, we go through this in a couple of chapters, we've got a sex and gender chapter and a parenthood and relationship chapter in the book, and we go through a lot of, the, a lot of this, but because of the initial inequalities in investment where eggs are big and cytoplasm rich and they sit still and sperm give nothing to the operation except half of the genome and they're zippy and they can find the egg, right? Because of that initial inequality in investment, you have some things that go down downstream and that mean that gender, while it is not binary and it is m far more mutable than sex is, does tend to be strongly bimodal. And so we do tend to have ways in which women are, um, are more likely to be interested in people than things. 
and more likely to be interested in uh, domestic things uh, and less likely to be explorers and more likely to be focused on the finer details rather than the than the larger scene. So the for mistaking for the forest for the trees, uh, women are better at identifying trees, at finding the keys, for instance, um, and men are on average better at um, recognizing the larger scene at perhaps wayfinding, but only if they had a woman around to help them find the keys in the first place, right? So you know these are these are both stereotypes and population level truths, which is to say that there are plenty of women out there who are extraordinary at exploring and at recognizing massive pattern, and plenty of men out there who are extraordinary caregivers and terrific, um, terrific in situations where they are expected um, to be doing social things, right? So these, none of these pronouncements, which are very reinforced by a lot of good research, um, suggest that men are over here and women are over there and never the twain shall meet. These are overlapping distributions, right? Overlapping distributions with, with um, very close alignment, but on average different. So um, the sex is real, gender is real, trans is real. Okay, trans is trans. You, the idea that you can have an actual sex and then all these ramifications of sex, the chromosomes, the anatomy, the physiology, the behavior, the brain, and that one of those may be out of step with what your actual sex is. And you may have such a sense that you cannot reconcile that you need to live as the sex to which you were not born. We know we, we have friends who are trans. We know this is real. It's incredibly rare. It's incredibly rare, and the overlap between the incredibly rare population of people who are actually trans and the trans rights activists who are claiming that you can actually change into a woman if you're born as a man or vice versa, and who are claiming that, for instance, all you have to do is declare yourself a man and you should be able to play in women's sports. No. No, this is this is this is batshit crazy and makes no sense at all. And frankly, every human being recognizes this. And what is surprising is that so many people are falling for it because we are told that this is the next civil rights battle, in part. So I would just add, trans is real. It's not new. Many cultures uh, make these allowances. In fact, most of them have. And it is also the case that Western civilization has grappled with this, and we've all pretty much become comfortable with the idea that you should be free within reason to to live as you want, to dress as you want, to be called as you want. Um, that's not the same thing as being able to choose what prison you go to. If you you know if you're a sex offender, male, and you want to go to a women's prison, that's not your right to do. Um, you know, and I I, I looked up. Uh, I think it's nineteen. 68 the kinks put out lola you should look at the lyrics to lola right we were pretty well on our way to you know recognizing uh you know uh girls will be boys and boys will be girls it's a mixed up tumbled up shook up world except for lola i mean this was an embrace of the idea that this is a complicated puzzle right it's not an uncompassionate song to lola the singer is clearly compassionate and the point is we're still wrestling with this it's not simple and you know uh, as much crap as dave Chappelle is taking for his recent special he more or less nails the same point right um yeah. you know i knew your father he was a wonderful woman <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah that's yeah. where we are and i think the point is anybody who wants 
to say the truth here is absolute. It is clear. Anybody who doesn't adhere to it is a transphobe, a bad person, this, that, or the other, is engaged in a power exercise. This is not about justice. This is about exerting power over other people, and it's unacceptable, and we are losing our minds over it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that is, that's where I stand with it as well. You clearly want the best, but it seems like, like I said, that, that power, that, that weapon that you're using in, to, to try and launch it on to you know, a, a populace that is, is not denying that they have compassion for what other humans are going through. That's, you know, so that's also an, an, an issue that I'm sure we will solve in the metaverse. Uh, oh, of course. No, you know, so <laughs> it's about I don't time. think that you're not worried. You shouldn't be worried about anything. But um, listen, guys, thanks a lot uh, for, for being here. The book, A Ga- Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. Um, I'm going to, of course, devour the, the rest of this, which is awesome. Is there anything or any place else where you guys uh, want uh, people to, to look out for you? Uh, in, in, in what you're doing. Sure. Um, they can find Heather's Substack at naturalselections.substack.com. Naturalselections.substack.com. They can find us at the Dark Horse Podcast on YouTube and Odyssey. You can find me on Twitter at Brett Weinstein. Brett has one T. You can find Heather at, at Heather E. Hying, H E Y I N G. And mostly you can find us out in the world. That's right. <laughs> Engaging with we're like not, the physics not, of it all. We're not in Zagreb, people. but maybe next time we are, we'll find you out yeah. in the world. Yes, absolutely. Anytime. Listen, we will make sure we have links to all this. So if you guys are listening to this, it's in the show notes. If you're watching this on YouTube or anywhere, that is in the link. Uh, the links are in the description box. So guys, thanks a lot once again. Loved it. And uh, we'll do it again sometime. Thank Great. you this so much. Fun. Be well. Right.